When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mailbag. Nothing personal word of the day for today is mailbag. I am knee deep in rhinos at the moment, which is why you're getting mailbags. But you guys have so many questions. There's never enough time for mailbags. So for this stretch of time, when I am going around Africa, get on social media at David P. Sampson on Twitter. Whenever there's service, there will be posts of different videos and different crazy things that are going on. And on the assumption I do not get eaten, poached, or filleted, I will be back. Mailbag is when you go onto Apple and you rate and review and you write a review and in the review you ask a question or get on Twitter or Instagram at David P. Sampson. Not TikTok, but you can go on TikTok. There's a nothing personal TikTok that Coca frequents. Ask some questions and we're going to give you some answers. Today, we start with number one. Always a good way to start. Hello, David. Hello. Hope you're having a wonderful week. That's a double salutation. That's very nice of you. Now, what's the question? Could you give us two or three examples of things you really miss about running a team and a few you absolutely do not? This is one of the top questions we've gotten on Nothing Personal because I think about this subject almost every day. When you've run a team for 18 years, I almost touched the side of the microphone, Coco. When you've run a team for 18 years, you have plenty of time to understand the positives, the negatives, the pros, the cons. I never did a Ben Stiller along came Polly list, right? The computer program where he does the pros and cons of Deborah Messing or Jennifer Aniston. But I always am thinking about what is it about today that I love and what is it about today that I would like to not repeat tomorrow? I think that is a great philosophy to have, and I've had it for as long as I can remember, which is trying to make the good times last and have the bad times go away. It's sort of like when you're trying to build a winning team, you want the window to be open for as long as possible and the losing window to be open for as short a period as possible. There's certain things, and I'm not a pessimist by nature at all. When I see a glass like this is my water, unsponsored, do you hear that? Right, I look at this water, if you're on YouTube, nothing personal with David Sampson, you can see. This is about half full. That's how I would say it. Now it sort of looks a quarter full actually, but I'm gonna say it's half full. I'm an optimist. But I'm gonna start on the negative side because I wanna end with positive. What do you do, Coco, when you're presented? Will you whisper in my ear? When someone says, this is one of my favorite intros, hey, I've got some good news and some bad news. Which do you want first? Well, how the hell do I know? Is the good news so good that I'll forget about the bad news? Or is the bad news so bad that any good news is gonna get washed away? Like what's gonna be the lasting impression from the, hey, you want the good news or the bad news? I always want the bad news first and I wanna start 
and I want to end with the good news. Coca is whispering he wants the good news first, so at least he can be, like, happy for one second before bad news. That's an interesting difference in our personalities, and God knows there are a lot of differences. But I'm going to give you the bad first. A few things that you don't know are part of my job were, that's a dollar, were part of my job that I do not miss. The Montreal Expos and the Florida Marlins and the Miami Marlins, every year of 18 years, got revenue sharing money. One of the rules in the collective bargaining agreement when you get money from revenue sharing is that you have to prepare a document for the union and for the commissioner's office that details what you are using your revenue sharing money for. And the rules are that you have to use it to quote, improve the major league product. Now that's got a gaping hole the size of the Grand Canyon because we would argue when we'd hire a data analyst or when we would spend extra money on a draft pick, we would say we are doing that to improve our major league product, but that's not really what revenue sharing is meant for. It's meant to actually improve the major league team. But every year, in addition to the document that you have to prepare, you have to meet with Major League Baseball. So for years, it was Jonathan Mariner, who people in Florida may remember, used to be the CFO of the Marlins under John Henry and became the CFO of Major League Baseball. Or Jeff White was the CFO prior to that. Meet with their outside consultants and accountants, Bob Starkey, who may still currently be there. We would have to meet, and this is pre-Zoom, I presume you know that. We'd have to go to New York. Now, I was in Miami. Now, I always like going to New York, and I'd make a trip of it, which may appear on the good news, things that I miss about running a team. But then we'd have to go to the commissioner's office, sit there with our document, and explain to these people who don't run teams what we're doing in order to satisfy the basic requirements in the basic agreement. And it was a waste of their time, a waste of our time, because they didn't care, we didn't care, the union pretends to care, but they don't care. They file grievances because it's good to file grievances, but they really don't care that the A's, the Rays, the Marlins, or the teams don't use their revenue sharing to make their teams better, right? They just pretend to. But we'd have to sit in those meetings, and they would schedule teams like they would dedicate an afternoon where one team after another would come in because let's say there's 10 teams who get revenue sharing so they would do 45 minute meetings and back to back to back so it was like march of the living dead you walk in to the conference room and the a's are there they get up and they sort of smile and they walk out of the room the marlins sit down you eat a donut a little schmear they've got some cheap deli sandwiches in the commissioner's office then you finish you walk out of the office and you just say my God, I will never get those 45 minutes back. So that is something that I did not like about running a team. Another thing I did not like about running a team. Explain to me another job where everyone who doesn't have your job thinks they can do your job better than you do your job, and they're vocal about it, whether it's on radio, on TV, whether you're in the media, whether you're just a fan, whether you're a relative. I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you traded for this guy. I can't believe you left your starting pitcher in for that extra inning. I can't believe you didn't pitch hit John Doe for Jane Doe. I can't believe that you can't get a stadium built faster. I can't believe there's no one in the stands. David, are you aware that there's no one in the stands? David, there's no way there were 18,769 people there last night. I know. I don't need you to tell me how to run the team. I am aware of every decision I'm making and why I'm making it. I appreciate that you're telling me something, 
but you may not know the whole story. There's sort of a rule, right? Don't comment on other people's parenting skills. Do we all agree that that is a rule that is steadfast? Another good rule if you're trying to be married happily, don't talk about your significant others or spouse's family. Let them talk about it. No matter how much you can't stand your mother-in-law, father-in-law, sister-in-law, brother-in-law, whatever it is, nieces, nephews, doesn't matter. You can't say anything. But for some reason, when you run a sports team, people forget that and they just think they can say it. That used to make me crazy. Here's another thing I didn't very very well like. When you, this is gonna come off so terribly, but I don't sleep well, you know that. I do not enjoy the road trips when the planes, now this is gonna sound terrible because it's very cushy, you're flying on a private plane, it's a chartered flight, they're all first class seats, you have great food on the plane, everything's amazing. I don't like pulling into a city after 2 a.m. and then having a game the next day. And the reason I don't is when you're on the road, you do work during the day, and then you go to the game at night, then you go out after the game. So that is me choosing to be tired. When a game, when a flight gets in after 2 a.m., you go back to the hotel, you're not, you're not tired, you're sort of awake, you're either happy or upset depending on the result of the game that you just played in another city, and you don't know what city you're in. And that sounds crazy, I know, but when you travel with a team, sometimes you forget where you're going because all hotel rooms look alike. So I didn't love getting into road cities that late. It turns out players don't either, which is why they've changed game times. So there are many fewer arrivals at that time of night. Another thing that I do not like and did not like about running a team, it was the human resources department. Now this is not specific to running a team. This is specific to running a company. I understand how important human resources the department is. Managing people. It's something that is extremely critical if you're gonna be successful. What I didn't like dealing with were the pension issues, employment-related law issues, legal issues, severance negotiations, all the things that you have to do that are not personal relationship-based. So I loved being the president of a team and I loved talking to everyone in the organization. I loved having an open door policy. I loved meeting with my employees. I loved doing events with them. I loved having relationships with them. You know, not those relationships, but working relationships. But there's an entire mechanical side to human resources that literally would make your eyes tear. Because when you hire someone like in your job, I don't know if you know this, but if you're full-time and you have benefits and there's a 401k plan, some other type of retirement plan. There's so much that goes into that. I didn't really enjoy that. Here's another tough thing about running a team, the budget process. So the budget process is when you go to every department, they've got a book that's about three inches thick. The budget for a baseball team is three binders that are eight inches each. You've got every single department in the company. You've got a breakdown of what their costs were, what their revenue was, what the expenses were, breaking down the expenses by category. You've got thousands of different categories. When you buy a paperclip, there's a category for it, like office supplies in marketing. And so you will go through the entire budget line by line. Then you get to a bottom line. I've had many arguments, including with Jeff Passan, 
although I can't argue with him because he won't go on the show. He won't go on Levitard or nothing personal because he's too scared of me. But the fact is that Jeff Passan doesn't realize that at the end of a budgetary process, the majority of teams, the bottom, bottom cash operating income line, cash required for operations, usually is red. Red, bad. Black, good. And in the red means that you've got to change the budget to make that number green for zero, black for positive. And to do that, you generally change the biggest budget item that exists in the baseball budget, and that is the payroll. So every year, I would have to go to the owner 18 times. And that's just to set the budget. Then when we're not making our budget numbers on the revenue side and we're losing more games or we're losing more money or whatever we're doing, meeting with the owner about a budget and about money constantly. But 18 of those meetings, Jeffrey, we got 5,000 season ticket holders. We're getting the following revenue from our stadium. We have this expectation for revenue sharing. We have that expectation for broadcast revenue. That's contractual. We're going to get that. This is the variable revenue. This is the fixed revenue. These are our expenses. I'm going to need $17 million. What? Relax. Here's how I need it. I'm going to need $8 million by February 1st. Then another $6 million by July 1st. Then we're going to have a floating line of credit that will cover us to the following October. And then we're going to hold on until we get revenue sharing payments in November. The bottom line is when you look at your checkbook, December 31st, you're going to have 17 fewer million dollars. And I've got to sit with him and go through it. And every year with very few exceptions, when we were operating at a profit, when we had very, very low payrolls, like in 2006, even in 2013, when we cut the payroll, the team did not make money, by the way. I'm trying to think the years that the team made money. It would have been 06 when we traded everyone away, which is a question for another mailbag or maybe even this one. And uh, I can't remember 07, 08. It could have been that too. And that we used to pay down debt that then went into the ballpark. So it could have been 06, 07, 08, something like that. But at best, I did four out of 18. And you're looking at a man and you're saying, you're funding this. Like, it's not an accounting gimmick. This is actual wires that have to be sent into the company to keep it operational. That is not a pleasant conversation because in the real world, when you're meeting with your boss and you're losing money, it's sort of like Orlando Bloom and Alec Baldwin in Elizabethtown when he made the shoe, the Spasmodica, that lost almost a billion dollars. He got canned. He became a connoisseur of last looks. I never became a connoisseur of last looks because I always had a few years left on my contract. So I didn't like that. What about a list of things I did like about running a team? I'm giving you the real list, not the sugar-coated, politically correct list. I'm telling you what I really liked about being president of a baseball team. I was able to get whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted it, from whoever I wanted it from. I could get into any restaurant. I could get into any hotel. I could get into any doctor. I had to take care of something. My son, Caleb, chipped a tooth while playing Little League. I had the team dentist in the chair 20 minutes later on a Saturday afternoon. Now, that makes me sound like a total entitled D-bag, right? But I was not that way. I was always very thankful and appreciative, but I was very clear that 
my frustration tolerance level was de minimis. Therefore, when I wanted something, I wanted it, and I wanted it right then and there, but I'm not going to cry wolf. So when I need something, I'm going to tell you. And there's something about when you're president of a team and you walk in a room, when you walk into a function, when you're recognized, that feeds the ego. Even when your team stinks or you've traded players, there's something about people in person, they're not throwing tomatoes at you or booing you. They're asking for your autograph, they're taking pictures, and they're just wanting to talk to you. I did enjoy that. Second thing, I enjoyed meeting celebrities. Yes, I admit it. I enjoyed meeting Gabrielle Anwar and Jeffrey Donovan from Burn Notice. I enjoyed spending time with Owen Wilson and Jennifer Aniston and Jessica Biel. I enjoyed spending time because it was cool. I enjoyed meeting Bruce Springsteen. I enjoyed seeing the Who in the clubhouse of the Marlins at Pro Player Stadium before a Super Bowl. What year was that, Coca, if you're still here and not in Africa or wherever you are while I'm in Africa? Although we're recording this before I go, so in theory, you're still listening to the show. If you are, the Who did a Super Bowl halftime, and I promise you it was at Pro Player Stadium, whatever it was called. It could have been called Dolphin Stadium or Landshark. So it would have been between 2002 and 2011. Somewhere in there, the Who performed. And I walked into the clubhouse, and there was Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey. God, that was amazing. So the perks of being a president of a team were significant. It was February of 2010. That's pretty close to what I said there, Coca. That's within the Price is Right window, and they called it Sun Life then. Fair enough. When people ask me where were you in the beginning of your career, I always say pro player. I'm not sure why I say that. I wonder if that's because it was pro player when we won the World Series, which I don't know if that's the case, but I think it was. It wasn't Joe Robbie at that time, and I don't think they changed it to Landshark or Dolphin or Dolphins or Sun Life in any case. So that is a perk, another thing that I took advantage of that I really enjoyed. The next thing I loved about running a team, I thought that I was involved in what at the time was the most important thing going on in the world. There was nothing about politics or January 6th or you know the, the movement, the Me Too movement. There was nothing. To me, the world was sports and the world was baseball. When you can walk into a room or go to a heat game and spend 10 minutes talking to Pat Riley for the only reason that you are the president of the Marlins, or he calls you on the phone because he needs something for his family, and he's the coach of the Knicks when I was a huge fan of the Knicks, it's like Charles Grodin is how I felt. Um, There's a movie called Dave with Kevin Kline and Sigourney Weaver and Charles Grodin, and Dave is impersonates the president and he gets to be the president but he's not the president and Charles Grodin is his friend and accountant Charles Grodin comes into the White House looks at him sees him acting like the president and says get out of here as fast as you can I can't believe what are we doing there were so many moments during my career where I felt that way what am I doing sitting with Don Mattingly like what what am I doing and I was always aware of it thinking about it and I loved it the next thing I loved There's something about being responsible for other people's happiness. I've always been a big logistics guy. I'm the planner. When you're taking a vacation, when you're doing something fun, I'm the one who's going to plan it, and I'm going to make sure that there's no detail left unplanned. I'm going to make sure that everyone is having the time of their lives. It doesn't matter if I am. It just matters that everyone else is because I'm in the memory-making business. Being in the memory-making business may be the coolest business you can ever be in. 
Forget all the other perks. I'm thinking about, and I'm going to say it, the millions of people, and I know you can make fun of attendance, but I assure you, especially with the World Series win in 2003, but above that, when you have someone on the field for a first pitch, when you host a bunch of school children, when you go give a speech at a school, when you give turkeys away, all of the things that I did because I wanted to and I could do as president of a team, I made memories for millions of people. That is incredibly feeding to your ego, but it also feels so good that you've made some sort of imprint. I've talked on this show quite a bit about the obit, right? I think about death a lot and it scares the absolute crap out of me and I'm not gonna get morbid here, but I talked to you about an obituary moment. An obituary moment is when something happens in your life and you know it's gonna be part of your death article. David Sampson, comma, 120, died yesterday, surrounded by four women in Vegas. That seems like an interesting way to go at 120. But anyway, I digress. And then David Sampson, known for da-da-da-da. So there's a bunch of things that you want to be known for. Winning the World Series is one of them. But making memories. If I could write my own obit, I would want to be the person who was the memory maker for so many. I really, really did love that. The next thing I loved, making dreams come true for players. Now, I've come off to you as a very anti-player person, but that's not accurate. I was very businesslike, no question about it. I was very honest when players weren't good enough, they were going to be released, they were going to be traded, they were not going to play, they were not going to get signed, they were not going to get extended, whatever the case may be. But there's so many hundreds, hundreds of players who I saw make their major league debut, who I saw do something big at the major league level, which for them, that's their life. That's their job. That's their love. And when you see a player be successful and you were a part of that and you share that with them, that's an amazing thing. I was thinking, I talked to Jeremy Hermita so many times. To me, Jeremy Hermita was not a success. He made the big leagues. He was a very high draft pick of the Marlins. He had the sweetest left-handed swing. And I love him to this day. I'm still in touch. He's got a beautiful family. He was called up in 2005, and he had a grand slam in his first at-bat. I think the Marlins, Coca, this season had another player do that. Is that possible that a rookie was called up for the Marlins? Could his name be Encarnacion? I don't, I, I don't know. In any case, his first at-bat was a pinch-hit grand slam home run. And I was in the clubhouse, and I said to him, and he remembers it and I remember it, it's all downhill from here. And we laughed, but then it was. But when you see players do things, accomplish things, when you see executives make a sale, when you know that there's a young salesperson who's selling season tickets and they get a huge sale in the Diamond Club or they sell a suite, or you see the marketing people come up with a marketing plan that actually works, that's interesting. Like we, we had slogans every year, it's time to play or why not us, why not now? We had all these things, that would be a whole nother set of meetings that we'd have to do. But in any case, watching people succeed and I think about this as a father a lot. I'm not the type of father. I've told you that I've had plenty of failings as a father. But there's one thing that I did right. I mean, I could argue there's more than one. But one of the things that I feel I did right is that I never got in the way of my kids enjoying and succeeding in the areas they wanted to enjoy and succeed in. 
I never made them do things that I could never do so I could live vicariously through them. I never was competitive with the kids when they did something saying, oh, when I was in ninth grade, I was the this and that, and then look at me, I'm this and that. And there's so many fathers like that, and it causes such an issue with fathers and sons and fathers and daughters. I have no idea why I'm talking about this right now. Oh, enjoying the accomplishments of others. I sort of get off on that, right? That's, that's a weird expression for this, because I don't actually. I enjoy it to the point because it all goes back to number one. I've now been a part of a memory. I've made a memory. I took, uh, I took my kids to do a lot of things and I let them take their friends to a lot of things, always inside the clubhouse, always good seats, always trying to give them moments and experiences. Gave a lot of tickets, gave a lot of autograph balls to people who would just write me. I still do that when people write me for autograph balls. We do contests on nothing personal, sending memorabilia that I have. I've gotten so many letters from so many of you who are so appreciative of some of the things we do, but I must admit to you, a lot of it for me is selfish because I am feeling so good that you feel so good. Thank you for that question. Number two, please. Yes. Can you explain? Please. Can you explain the reasons why MLB team, which wins the World Series, dismantles the winning team? <laughs> I know why you're asking that. I do. You're asking that because the 97 Marlins won the World Series and then dismantled. They called it a fire sale. You're asking because your view is the 2003 Marlins did the same thing, which they didn't. You're asking that because the 2019 Nationals did the same thing. Let me, let me get right down to this, if you don't mind. Winning a World Series has a lagging effect on your revenue. That means when you are having a good year and you advance deep into the playoffs, you are not seeing the fruits of that financially except for the playoff revenue that you get by hosting playoff games, but that you only get if they are deep into a series. So if a four-game sweep is an example, you're not making any money by being in the playoffs. You have to get to game six and seven before you start making money. The amount of money that we made in 2003, and I'll never forget this, although I did forget it. It's either 13 or 17 million. I can't remember which it was. Whatever it was, it did not make up for the amount of money that we lost that year. It brought us close to even. But the real money in theory is supposed to be the year after because you go into a selling season starting August, September, October, November, through the off season, through spring training, and you call people on the phone and say, hey, do you want to buy season tickets? We're the defending champions. Come join us. It's awesome at Pro Player Stadium. The problem is in Miami, we never got the bounce that you would want to get after winning a World Series. Our season ticket holder number maybe went to 
eight, nine, ten thousand in two thousand four because people just didn't like pro player. There was no scarcity of inventory, right? That's a simple supply demand issue. When there's sixty thousand seats, it's hard to convince someone, hey, buy eighty one games up front, otherwise you're not gonna get a seat when there's always seats. And then StubHub comes along and then you're totally screwed because anyone who wants to go to a game, no one cares anymore about having the specific seat and being around the same people game after game, stuff that I loved about being a season ticket holder, having your same group and enjoying games as a, and making sort of like your sports family. So it's very hard to budget for a huge increase in revenue. And when you've won a World Series, or you finished in last place, there's something that happens on the field. Players get a year older. Every player who's a year older, has a year more of service time, will make more money the next year. We happened to win with the young pitching staff in 03, they entered arbitration. We happened to sign Pudge Rodriguez to a one-year deal for $10 million, won the World Series, and he wanted 40 million over four. There was no way Pudge was gonna be good. I love you, Pudge, but you know why you were good in 03. You're a Hall of Famer, of course. But you know what you looked like in Detroit. You know when you said to me, yeah, Poppy, I had a great workout this offseason. GMAB, Pudgy. I told you we couldn't go four years. We had to let him go. Derek Lee was getting too expensive. We had to replace him with a cheaper player. He stopped Choi. To keep the same team together after you win a World Series means the payroll is skyrocketing and you are guaranteed not to win. Now, Yankees, 98, 99, 2000. I double dare you to look at the roster from 2000 versus 98, their third year in a row of winning. How many players on that roster from 2000, the World Series roster in 2000, were on the World Series roster in 98? How about the Yankees World Series roster in 03? How many of them were on the team in 99 or 2000? There is no baseball team that runs it back. That is my least favorite. Going back to question one, what's your least favorite part of running a team? It's, it's not my least favorite, but it could have been on the list. Hey, run it back, man. Nobody runs it back. You can't run it back. There's a good business lesson you're either moving forward or you're moving backward, rest assured you're not standing still. Because if you think you're standing still, surprise, you're going backwards. There's only one way to move forward, and that's actually moving forward. That means changing personnel. I'd like to know one World Series winning team that kept its whole team together. Now, what happened in 1997, huge fire sale, Wayne Huizinga, during was the owner then, not Jeffrey Loria, Although we blamed for multiple fire sales in Florida because the longer you go back, right? Now that's 25 years ago, right? 1997. Think about like 50 years from now. Hey, did Laurie own the team in, he owned the team in 97 03. That was six years apart. Of course he did. He owned it for like 18 years. Wait, was that 1947 they started? 1943? This is like the year 2300. When did the Marlins start again? Oh, 1993. Like in 100 years, the difference between 1943 and 1993 is like a rounding error. It doesn't even matter. We're only 25 years away from 97, and people are like, oh, 97, yeah, that was you, right? Oh, side note, detour. When I'm introduced on radio shows or TV shows, and I'm introduced incorrectly, 
I'm going to correct them. When they say the president of two World Series winning teams in Florida in 97 and 03, I'm not taking that credit. I didn't win in 97. I won in 03. Just like if they say GM of the team, I'll say no, president. Or they say owner of the team, I'll say no, president. You cannot let people introduce you incorrectly because if they under-introduce you, then you're correcting them to your benefit. If they over-introduce you, you're correcting them to your detriment. But in order to correct them, right, positively, you've got to be willing to correct them negatively. So I correct anybody who introduces me wrong. Wasn't there in 97. Wayne Huizinga during the course of that season was trying to get a ballpark built. Yes, wasn't just us trying to get a ballpark built in Florida. Wayne Huizinga, the original owner of the Marlins, tried to get a ballpark built. He actually wanted to do what Steve... The irony, Coca. Wayne Huizinga wanted to do what Stephen Ross is doing right now, except he didn't want to call it Hard Rock Hotel or Hard Rock Stadium. He wanted to call it Wayne's World. Go back and check. He wanted to have a water park and development and all sorts of stuff. Steve Ross, bless his heart, he's got the vision for all these great events and all of these destination events at Hard Rock and Miami Gardens. It's what every owner wants to do and tries to do. Wayne Huizinga during the course of 97 said, listen, if you don't give us financing, public money, Wayne Huizinga, a billionaire, back in 97, if you do not give us public money, we are cutting the payroll and trading all these players. And the politicians back then said, horse hockey, you're never going to do that. Guess what? The Marlins won the World Series. And then everyone was gone. And the next year, correct me if I'm wrong, Coca, I believe that in 1998, the Marlins lost a hundo as defending World Series champions. But you can check that pretty easily. All we did is lose Derek Lee. They lost 108 games as defending champions. OMG. But by the way, that's what happens when you trade everyone away. We traded everyone away in 05 and had a very low payroll in 06, and we won 83 games. But the year after we won the World Series, what were we in 04, 83 and 79? So we went from 91 and 71 to 83 and 79. Eight games worse. Is that considered a fire sale? Is that considered like terrible? I think we were 83 and 79 the year after, which was a nightmare because we signed Delgado and we signed Al Leiter and then we traded everyone away. And then we won 79 games in 06. You know, looking back, Coco, we were not that bad. Why are we? And I think we had a winning record in 09 with Freddie. Anyway, so the reasons why teams get dismantled, it's just money. But if you look back at the changes that World Series winning teams have made, I would not call it a dismantling because the only thing better than winning one ring is winning two rings. Owners want to win a second ring. They're not satisfied. I look back at my career and I'm thrilled. And I look at them every day at the ring I have. I have multiple rings from the same year, of course. We had an A ring, a B ring, and a C ring, and I got one of each. Three kids, an A being, that's going to be an interesting Interesting estate question. How do you give one of your kids a C ring, one of your kids a B ring, and one of your kids an A ring? Huh. Interesting. I can't. I guess they're just going to have to sell and split the money. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's what they're going to do anyway, right? It sort of makes sense. So I take a little issue with your question. 
in that the reasons why MLB teams who win the World Series dismantle, I say they don't dismantle. They may retool, they may make some changes, but they are definitely, definitely trying to repeat. I assure you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay. Hey, David. Hey. How you doing? Great job recently. Thank you. I was hoping you could give some insight as to how owners work in terms of being a spending team or not. Ooh, you're from Detroit. As a Tigers fan, for the last few years, Chris Illich has told the media that they were containing spending until a certain time frame when they would then start spending and competing. It seems like they're ready to compete. Is there anything not obvious that owners do which might signal they are going to either start or stop spending on bigger free agents? Any go-to quotes or phrases that are used? This is a great question. Let's talk about the Detroit Tigers. You signed Javi Baez. You signed Eduardo Rodriguez. Are you happy? You got A.J. Hinch as your manager. You have Miguel Cabrera. Got his 3,000th hit, his 600th double. Hall of Fame first ballot. You satisfied? I never understood for the life of me why fans just want owners to spend, and if they spend incorrectly, they're off the hook, but if they don't spend and they're good, they're still criticized. How can you criticize Stu Sternberg, but not Artie Moreno? Hmm. I would think that you want to win. That's always been my working assumption. But it turns out so many of you are okay with just spending. Remember when Tom Ricketts signed Edwin Jackson for like $55 million in the middle of a rebuild because he was so upset that the team wasn't winning and there was so much pressure on the north side in Chicago that he just felt, just sign anyone. Give him money because then we can say, look, we're signing free agents. Do you know who knows when a team is ready to win? Because it's not you and it's not me. It's your baseball people. If you've got a good GM, your GM is going to be honest with you and tell you when you're ready to go and when you're not. The problem is... 
when you don't give your GM a long-term contract, GMs are tending to be more short-term oriented and they will try to tell you that, hey, we're ready to win right now because they want you to spend right now because they want to have a better team right now because they want to win right now because they want a contract extension. That's totally normal, right? If you don't have long-term security, you better have short-term success. But baseball is a weird sport. In order to have long-term success, you actually have to build up to that. So we always give you years. This is good, right? Because it's such, such unbelievable horse hockey. When a team says to you, yeah, the way we're looking right now, we're looking at three years, three years, three to four years. We would not let our baseball people say that because why, why would anyone buy a ticket to that? The fact of the matter is, there is no excuse for a team to have extended periods of losing. Because even when your window is closed with a group of players, if you've chosen the wrong players and you've held on to them too long, then you're just a badly run team. Guilty. I kept saying there's no way Stan Yelich and Ozuna can't win 81 games. There's no way Ugla and Ross and, and those teams with Ricky Nolasco and Josh Johnson, there's no way that team isn't a playoff team. But then they weren't. And then they weren't. And then they weren't. At what point do you say my evaluation is wrong? They're not ready. The bottom line is given where salaries are now and contracts are now. There is no owner who should be spending to spend or signing a free agent because they believe the fans want it, the fans need it, because they believe they're ready to win. When a GM tells you they're ready to win, what I would suggest that your team does Save it for the deadline. Do what Atlanta did last year. Make good deadline deals and try to ride a hot streak into October and through October. Because we've told you time and time again that winning the offseason does not matter. So you've got owners, it's really through PR people, but sometimes it's owners, who will take the microphone during the offseason, like at the winter meetings, let's say, and they'll talk about the signings they've done. We believe that we are in a position to be competitive. We want to play. Here's a good one. We want to play meaningful games in September. We want to show our fans that we want to win right now. We believe the team that's put together should be able to compete. That's code for we're going to lose 90 games. We look at this team and feel if everything falls the right way, we are a playoff team. That's a 90-loss team. These are all tricks that we used. We believe it's necessary to do a retool, not a rebuild. It's a 90-loss team. The best teams are the ones that just keep quiet, and I had the hardest time keeping quiet. The reason I had our time keeping quiet is I thought I had a fill, and this is by, you know, Coca, can we, we can talk personally for a minute on this show, right? I've always had a problem with silence. Comfortable silence for me is a total oxymoron. I'll start a fight with someone I'm with, a significant other, a wife, a girlfriend, whoever. I'll start a fight instead of having just silence. I never understood the concept of being at a restaurant with your spouse and sitting there quietly because to me that means it's a bad relationship. When people always say to me, no, that could be and it's a good relationship. Everyone's comfortable in their own space. They're comfortable sitting there in silence. I, can, I can't do it. I'm a talker. And in the absence, if I see a void, I'm going to say something. As a team president, 
there's voids all the time and you've got to be comfortable with them. And I never was. I always wanted to pound messaging into your brain, into the fan's brain, into the media's brain, into the sponsor's brain. We're trying. Everything you're saying about us isn't true. I always felt I needed to respond to everything. And looking back, looking back, I should have let way more go, way more. Don't even give it the benefit of a response. Don't give people that. I guess if I had to do the 18 years again, I mean, there's a bunch of stuff I'd change. That's a whole nother mailbag episode, Coca. We should do that. Like, what are the things that you would change completely? I've answered that a little bit, but there's way, way more that I could answer in terms of what I would change. But being okay in silence, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. Okay. That's it, Coca. That's our mailbag episode. We'll have another one. And remember, David P. Sampson, Twitter, Instagram. Check out for videos. I'm going to be posting about various things going on on the great continent of Africa. I'll be back in the beginning of August. Hang in there. Great things coming. End of baseball season, start of football season. Always a lot to catch up. I may have to do like 10 shows just about Danny Boy Snyder, right? We'll see you next time. It's just business. This is nothing personal. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800 3334 for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.